Hello, everybody. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, we're going to look at the horizontal evolution of red, if you will, or how ego, even when it stays ego, develops as it is contextualized by higher, basically, stages of development. So we'll get to that. But first, I want to share an email that I got that just delighted me. And as always, I love hearing from you. You can write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. You can also send a voicemail. I'll often play them online. And um, you can go to my website, dailyevolver.com, and you can find an orange button that says speak pipe, and you will be able to leave me a voicemail message there. People do that, and I play them as well. All right. So this is an email that I got from a new listener, I think, Patrick McCurry, and he is responding to an episode that I did a couple weeks ago called Mayor Pete's X Factor. Could it be integral consciousness? And I make the case that I think Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is running for president and was on Fox News town hall last night, and I'm not sure I want him to be president. Actually, he's 37 years old. I don't know. But I do um, sort of sense an integral sensibility with the guy. So anyway, this is from uh, the listener. And he writes, I just wanted to let you know how insightful that I found your recent video about Peter. I was Peter's high school ethics teacher, philosophy club moderator, of which Peter was a key participant, and theater director. He played piano masterfully for our rendition of Greece. He remains the smartest and most thoughtful person that I have ever met. Your analysis and intuition is dead on. He is 100% the real deal in mind, heart, and vision. And he was like that when he was 17 and 18 years old. Uh, first of all, I love that he calls him Peter. That's cute. Uh, and, um, and he goes on to address, a. In, at the end of the podcast, I uh, uh, shared some of the critique of Buttigieg from the left. And uh, there was a, a, an article that was written in Current Affairs magazine, uh, and it was written by Nathan J. Robinson. And he just basically said, no more white guys from Harvard with the Rhodes Scholarship and the McKinsey consultant. We want some, a, a new kind of candidate. And um, so Pete's teacher goes on to write, he says, the cynical writer of current affairs was unfortunately reacting to an idea of what Pete might be, not reacting to the person that he is. And then he puts in parentheses, and as a part cynic, I get it. <laughs> and I do too. Uh, so anyway, I enjoyed that letter. Okay, so now let me share another couple missives that I think help to introduce our theme. And this is a letter that I got from a longtime listener, Peter, who sent me a clip of a critique of Jordan Peterson by Gabor Mate, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And he is a left-wing intellectual. He self-describes himself that way. And he is, as Peter, my listener, writes, he's an extraordinary psychiatrist who spent decades helping some of the most vulnerable people, especially heroin addicts in Vancouver, Canada. So in this video that I'm going to share here, you'll hear Dr. Mate describe Jordan Peterson as an agent of repression posing as an agent of libertarianism. And it's an interesting critique. So here we go. I'd like to talk to him sometime. What are you so upset about, Jordan? What are you so afraid of? You know, he talks about these bloody Marxists. And, 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 he, and he points out very accurately all the horror 
that occurred under so-called Marxist regimes, particularly in the Soviet Union. He's absolutely accurate about that. But then he promotes Christianity. Shall I tell him about the mass murders that occurred in the name of Christianity? Shall I tell him about all the millions that were slaughtered in the names of the gentle Jesus? In other words, let's be fair about it. Okay, yes. To be fair, the Christians have a murderous history. The left has a murderous history. The right has a murderous history. History is murderous. And, you know, it, to acknowledge that is not news, and it's a bummer, and it misses the main point, I think at least, which is that humanity is radically less and less murderous as we develop until we get to the point of postmodernism, which is the you know, you know, emergent worldview that um, Jordan Peterson is uh, polarized against in a way. Uh, there, well, I think my, one of my listeners, Justin McSherry, put it well. Um, he writes, Jordan Peterson ultimately thinks that somehow, if left unchecked, liberals will eventually resurface the gulag or other forms of extreme communist atrocities. But he fails to see that postmodernists, broadly speaking, really aren't capable of that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. But nobody spells that out, or, God forbid, gives humanity any credit, much less wonders where we're headed if the trends of peacefulness and sensitivity continue. And I think to be fair to both Mate and Peterson, I think they know that, that we're not teetering on the brink of the gulags or the crusades or anything like that. But it's interesting to me that neither of them thinks it furthers their argument to acknowledge this. So anyway, all of this has me thinking about the nature of how the stack of worldviews that we have online in our contemporary world, how they manifest in context with each other, and how they, in a way, true each other up. And that there is sort of a horizontal development where each worldview, red, amber, orange, green, all of it, while staying true to its own essence, becomes more and more humane as it has to contend with new emerging worldviews. And of course, in large part, these new worldviews come online precisely to curb the worst behaviors of the previous stage. People get sick of it, they want something better. And that process of you know being in contention certainly isn't pretty, as we can see as we read the news, but it's better than each stage being left to its own devices. Because when it is, and in many cases still in this world, it is, and I'll get to that in a second, it runs roughshod over everything. And I want to illustrate this with some examples, not from ancient history, uh, but there's plenty of them there, but recent history. And I want to focus on red, the so-called horizontal evolution of red, how red becomes not less red in a certain way, but domesticated as it becomes contextualized uh, by the emergent stages. And I have some examples, and I eventually get to Trump because I know I talk about Trump being, as I say, in important ways red. And I think this helps me at least uh, understand what's going on with him. So I'm going to start with a scene from a Netflix show that I ran across that blew my mind. And what it does is it illuminates the essence of pure red that is in our world today. Now, we talk about red. Of course, red is the warrior stage. It's known as being egocentric. 
It's a stage that we go through as individuals uh, at the terrible twos and threes. And there's a sort of a reprise of it in a certain way as we get into teenage. Uh, but it's impulsive and, um, and brutal, you know, but it's also, a, you know, an appropriate stage of development and it can be more or less healthy. But again, when it is dominating, it is not healthy. And so this is a scene from a documentary called Larry Charles Dangerous World of Comedy. And Larry Charles is one of the lead comedy writers on Seinfeld and a famous comedy writer in that world. And in the promo, they describe his show, The Dangerous World of Comedy, as being a four-part series that follows the comedy writer and director Larry Charles as he travels the world in search of humor in the most unusual, unexpected, and dangerous places, such as Iraq, Somalia, Liberia, and Nigeria. So yeah, so he's going to places where Red is very much alive. And in the episode on Somalia, where there was a terrible, brutal civil war in the 90s, he interviews one of the most colorful and infamous characters from that war, a man called General Butt Naked. And that's exactly how it sounds, B-U-T-T, naked. And he's a real person. And he talks about his life when he was in exemplifying, you know, just the most pure warrior energy, just unencumbered. And as he was leading a troop of teenage soldiers, child soldiers, um, that was known as the Butt Naked Brigade. And they rampaged the countryside and killed thousands of people by his own admission. And they were known as, um, you know, for being basically crazy. Uh, he said, but we were strategic. Their thing was that they fought naked. Uh, that's why he's called General Butt Naked. There was a picture that went around the world. I actually remember it, I think, in real time and remember hearing about him in the 90s. And it shows him butt naked, wearing shoes. And his soldiers were known for wearing wigs and carrying purses uh, from the women that they would rape and murder. Um, these were the guys you didn't want to see. These were the rampaging warrior, crazy, even crazy, scary warriors. And that's one of the things that makes this General Butt Naked, whose real name is Joshua Milton Belaghi, um, that makes him interesting, is that he actually had a foot in the stage previous to Red, which is the magenta stage, the magic stage of development, the tribal stage of development. And this is where the world is, of course, filled with spirits. So he and his men would not only kill their enemy, but they would eat their flesh and their livers and their hearts because they wanted to gain the powers. And they were directed and got power from their tribal god, Nyan Biawe. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. I'm actually not sure I want to pronounce it properly. I don't want to call him forth. But as General Butt Naked said, he's the biggest god in the Kron tribe, and he demanded ritual sacrifice. Blayi, or General Butt Naked, described it himself. He says, before leading my troops into battle, we would get drunk and drugged up, sacrifice a local teenager, drink the blood, then strip down to our shoes and go into battle. We'd slaughter anyone we saw, chop their heads off, and use them as soccer balls. We were nude, fearless, drunk, yet strategic. We killed hundreds of people, so many I lost count. So in this clip I'm going to play, Larry Charles is interviewing General Buttnaked, and it's a current interview. And he asked him if he, you know, this is a show about comedy and he's going into these brutal red worlds to see what comedy's like there. It's really an interesting question and an interesting show in general. I recommend it. 
but anyway, he's asking him, did he ever laugh with the soldiers? Did they have fun? And this is what General Butt-Naked told him about. So here's a sense of fun at pure red. Yeah. We have we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of jokes. Yeah, I mean, I wondered if you remember laughing with your soldiers. You know, oh, yeah. Tell, tell me about that. Oh, yeah. That most of the time we set ambush and uh, the opponent or the enemies fall in it and then we play fun out of them, you know. Uh, we we lure them to a place and they reach the place like this and there is no way out. And then I jump from over the fence and I'm standing be, be behind them and they all see me drop their guns and they start begging and what have you. And, and, and so, so it's funny. Yeah, so, so yeah, Most yeah, of the time yeah. you wow. It's funny, but it's not funny, ha ha. Yeah, as he describes, yeah, they laughed a lot. They would lure their opponents into an ambush and they would jump over the fence and surprise them. And other soldiers would drop their guns and get on their knees and beg. And they would laugh before they then would slaughter them. So, you know, fun at red. Now, it also turns out that there is another huge evolutionary illustration in the life of General Butt-Naked. It turns out that he is now a very popular evangelical Christian minister. He found Christ after the war. He went, testified uh, to the, you know, their version of a reconciliation commission. And he is a Christian minister. He looks back on his time worshiping and, you know, appeasing the tribal God as he sees that God now is that that was the devil and that he has been redeemed from the devil and forgiven his sins. And he does work particularly with his ex-soldiers and with child soldiers of our time and helps them to, you know, rehabilitate themselves. Now, often on this show, I talk about these moments where we just feel ourselves move from one stage to the next. And clearly, this guy's done a lot of movement. As I pointed out, he started out with a foot in magenta with the tribal, magical, cannibalism, all of that sort of spiritual thing. And then in his red warrior stage, and now moving into where he is, you know, he finds Christ and he's civilized and he is uh, pacified. And here is a clip where he describes the moment where that happened for him. And it's a description of the last person he ever killed, which was a little girl that he sacrificed. Her, his mother, her mother brought her to him to sacrifice for the good of the village before he went out to battle. And so here he is describing that. She was even smiting when her mother turned her over to me and laughing and so, and something in me, you know, just thought she should not die. And I thought she was so beautiful, you know, to die. And so I kept her hoping that I could find a replacement. And for hours, the elders could not come with a replacement. And then the mother came back because she understood the culture. And it was an easy thing to donate or made a sacrifice of your child, you know, with your child. So she understood the culture and came back to appeal if the child did not meet the necessary criteria that I should please because the tribe were dying. And so I did. And it was the last time. So I just want to let that in. You know, the mother, the, the child is so beautiful, he can't do it. And so he begs the elders elders to go find a replacement and they can't and the mother 
comes back and wonders what's wrong with her sacrifice donation because as he put it, she understood the culture and the tribe was dying and they needed the approval of their God, or as, say, he, as he put it earlier, he, they needed to appease the throne. And, um, you know, so we want to feel into that world. And, you know, what was that? How must that mother feel that she hands over her laughing three-year-old? Uh, and her concern is that the, she wasn't good enough. And what what kind of connection to the tribe? Uh, you know, what kind of a deep, um, you know, sort of that louche, that liquid space between us that is characteristic of tribal culture. And as integralists, of course, we want to look at that and find that in our lives and see if we can't. And, you know, it's, we, it's missing. I mean, there's a lot of in development where subsequent stages repress not only the bad, but the good of these earlier stages. So, you know, as integralists, we want to notice that and bring it back as best we can. And we also want to notice what he went through. He did end up uh, sacrificing the little girl. Uh, but you can see how hard it is. And we, um, you know, we talk about how emergence is attracted to goodness, truth, and beauty. These, these produce values gravity. And in the case of General Butt Naked, this little girl's beauty was the portal for him to move to the next stage. Uh, and uh, as he put it, this is the last person I ever killed. And so that ushers him into, you know, he's as enthusiastic Christian now as he was warrior. Uh, and he is, uh, leads a church and he does his work with the child soldiers. And here's a little bit of general butt naked in his new role. Imagine my mistake and look at the very boys and imagine the day when I took them from their parents and made them to fight. Thank you, precious Holy Spirit. All those evil I did, all their life that I have ruined, at least let me see if I can contribute to revive the life, if possible. All right, so there they are, shouting hallelujah, and he's doing his good work. It's not violent, and that's progress, and uh, God bless him. So we could see through the story of General Butt Naked, the, the, the vertical move for him as an individual through, as I said, this one foot in magenta and, and full on red, and now a foot in traditionalism, amber, at least one foot, and, you know, again, God bless him. But what we also see is that there's pure red that still exists in our world. And of course, that's no secret in any war zone or gang zone or anything where there's really just nothing civilizing it. And um, so that still exists, and that's a pure red. But as we move into more civilized society and move into traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism, as I said, we want to sometimes repress the earlier stages. But we also, especially when we get the integral and we start making friends with all of this, uh, that we want to bring that back online. And we're doing that. And it's interesting to see how red is held as humanity develops. So when traditionalism comes online, its sole job really is to 
eliminate red, to eliminate magic. That's the whole witch trials and, um, you know, no more sacrifice, no more blood feuds, vengeance is mine, the Ten Commandments, no more lying and stealing, um, and no more worshiping amulets and uh, soothsayers and all of that stuff is repressed. And it's done in the service of emergence, which wants to have a more complex society. And, and that's the way we got to be thinking, people, if we're going to get more complex and more capable and more creative. And we do. Amber traditionalism has more or less success in that project. They basically organize the violence, and there's plenty of warfare and uh, sectarianism in traditionalism. But it's not tribal, it's, you know, and it's not magic-based, it's mythic-based. That's another story. And then moving on up to modernity, modernity against a way bigger level of complexity, and we have all sorts of rules and laws and judges and police forces, and we build a whole infrastructure around safety and controlling our red impulses. They're still there. There's criminal you know, activity, of course, but it is um, a radically safer world in modernity. And so we can get even more complex and creative. And because of that reliable safety of modernity, at post-modernity, we can start loosening things back up again. And we really take the sexual revolution into new territory. And we um, break the rules. And there's a, uh, a, a certain cachet and satisfaction and just transgression itself. But very civilized, you know. Uh, we get um, uh, the pro proliferation of art forms that are based on red archetypes, basically. Such as, you know, we're all talking about Game of Thrones. I, by the way, I have um, finally given in and am on season, midway through season three and loving it. It is fabulous. And, you know, it is what you would expect a cultural artifact to be in the sense that, yes, they're creating a red world, but these are people with a postmodern and, and I would argue integral sensibility who are doing it. And so it's, you know, it's not like really red, but it's, it's an art form. It's an expression of that. And we can see brutality and we can see all of the, you know, powers. And of course, the big new Avenger movie that is breaking all records. And, um, and I'm going to actually have a conversation with Jason Lang next week about the sort of, a, he's, a, he's an aficionado of all of this sort of thing. And I want to hear about it. Because it's interesting to see that red expressed with the green sensibility. And so that's um, some of what we get there. But then sometimes we get pure red. And I'm going to uh, share with you a couple things that just get that fucking red, I fucking hate your fucking guts thing going. That implacable egocentrism tell me we all don't have that voice in our head but at our new civilized heights we can play with it and we can turn it into an art form actually and that's what we've done as a culture and so i'm going to play a couple examples the first one from death metal and uh, you're not going to be able to understand the lyrics but i'll clear that up in a minute and this is Cannibal Corpse, a popular death metal band. I thought it was a good title for our example of red, um, cannibalism and corpse. Uh, and this, and actually the name of this song that I'm going to play just a few seconds of <laughs> is called Red Before Black. So also appropriate. So here's Cannibal Corpse, Red Before Black. Red, 
So that's Cannibal Corpse, red before black, expressing pretty pure red energy into a postmodern, modern postmodern culture, and thereby frothing the integral thing into being as well. So um, in case you didn't understand the lyrics, <laughs> here is another video of a guy who has done these a series of popular videos, apparently, it turns out, on YouTube, where he puts death metal lyrics to pretty songs. So here he is. Butchery of human beings is the only life I know. Starving for violence now I've been fed. <laughs> so admit it. There are days you feel that way. Um, there are days I do. And there are clearly days that a lot of people do. This is very popular. And it is um, a way of exercising. Exercising and exorcising, as in an exorcism these savage impulses in us because we're not going to get rid of them nor should we because there's, there's a lot of juice there okay i want to share one more example of pure red expressed artistically and this is a song by eminem uh called i just don't give a fuck so when you see me on your block with two blocks screaming fuck the world like two pops just don't give a fuck talking and shit behind my back dirty back and telling your boys that i'm on crack just don't give a fuck so put my tape back on the rack go run and tell your friends my city's whack i just don't give a fuck but see me on the street and duck cause you won't get stuck stolen and snuck cause i just don't give a fuck I'm nice and all right so there's that <laughs> now I don't think that uh, Eminem's red. I don't think that Cannibal Cor Corpse is red. I think these are artists who have a intuition, artistic intuition, that this wants to be in the culture. And it wants to be in the culture in this aesthetic form, which is raw. And, you know, if you think back to the general butt naked, it's the reality that they're dealing in and that red does deal in. And I think as we get hipper to th that these impulses need to be online in the healthiest way possible, we'll have better ways of initiating uh, adolescence into these energies. And, and we do with sports and so forth. Uh, there's plenty of that kind of good stuff and that stuff is happening. Uh, but this is the aesthetic form of it. And people understand that. It's, in fact, it was interesting to read the comments under this video on YouTube. And the first comment, I think, really sums it up by somebody who, uh, you know, got Eminem in real time, not like me, I'm, you know, I'm an old dilettante, but this is somebody for whom Eminem meant something. And he writes, it's crazy to think that this is the Eminem we grew up on. Amazing man. Thank you, universe for allowing me to grow up through this shit. So there you go, I love that comment. The second comment's also interesting. And there, there are of course thousands of comments. The second one reads, today's kids got safe spaces. Back then we had Slim Shady. That's Eminem's other persona. And the third comment, quotes a, I guess, famous Eminem lyric that I think is really interesting. And this is it. And it's, this is, he's quoting Eminem here. He says, I'm the looniest, zaniest, spontaneous, sporadic, impulsive thinker, compulsive drinker, addict, half animal, half man, and unquote. And you can sort of feel the thrill of that. So doesn't that sound like somebody we were just talking about? It's a perfect description of General Butt Naked and his drug-addled troops with their wigs and purses 
who were rampaging the territory. Okay, there's one last cultural artifact I want to share regarding General Butt Naked. And this is a scene from the play, The Book of Mormon, that was written by the um, South Park guys and is a big hit on Broadway. It's a Broadway musical. And General Butt Naked is in it. And the Mormon missionaries go from Utah to Liberia, and they're trying to convert General Butt Naked. So here it is. We have an intruder. He just walked right into camp. I believe that Satan has a hold of you. I believe that the Lord God has sent me here. And I believe that in 1938, God changed his mind about black people. All right, so that's that's uh, postmodernity and maybe integral. Though those guys have a lot of integral sensibilities to the degree that I really know their work. And again, I think it's a work of art. That, I actually think that the, the the play, the Book of Mormon, is an integral work of art because while it mercilessly skews with you know ridicule and irony and the specialties of post-modernity in a way that's trying to deconstruct and ridicule traditionalism and, you know, the idea that these white boys would go into Africa and all of that good stuff. It actually, at the end, respects it. And there's something that's heartwarming, actually, about all of the people and all of these memes, all of these worldviews that are in contention here. But um, I thought it was interesting that the general butt naked was featured. So, okay. So of course we can't talk about the manifestation of red in the culture without talking about president Donald Trump. And I must say, I was a little nervous a minute ago when I asked you who this description, the looniest, zaniest, spontaneous, sporadic, impulsive thinker, compulsive drinker, addict, half animal, half man, who that reminded you of, uh, but, um, you know, a lot of it's Trump. We can drop the compulsive drinker and addict, but, um, you know, a lot of it applies to him. And it is just the nature, again, of this red energy that he's a virtuoso in using. I've made the case for this in many podcasts, and I'm not going to repeat a lot of it. But developmentally, red is, we often talk about the post-truth world, red is actually pre-truth. That is, what's true is what Big Daddy says it is, actually. What's true is what the leader, the warlord, the soothsayer, the shamans, whatever, some authority in that way says it is. There's not objective reality in the way that we can examine it and use rationality and all of the stuff that comes online after. Now, Trump is a spiral wizard, if you will, in the sense that while he is not really comfortable in the world of rules and law and all of that stuff, he's at least competent enough at it to escape their consequences, at least so far. But in his heart, it's about weaving his own reality and weaving his own world and pulling other people into it. So I got an email from one of my listeners, KC, who sent me a video of Trump talking to the Association of American Realtors, I guess, National Association of Realtors, uh, I guess just a few days ago. And as he writes, he says, I don't often consume Trump long form, but I have to say, this is riveting. If you want to dive deeper into your character study of him, this is an amazing artifact. Taken as fiction, this could be an experimental HBO show. And he goes on to talk about it. But I'm going to play just a segment from it 
where Trump is talking to the realtors. Uh, and here it is. And it's no surprise that in California, and I don't want to single them out, but they have a train going up now. You know, this fast train, you heard about this disaster? I mean, you people know how to build on time, on budget, preferably ahead of time and under budget, right? This is a train that's not working out so well. It's a fast train, but not a bullet train, so it's not that fast. And it was going to go from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And then a thing called cost overruns happened. And many of you know about it. Well, it's in the thing today because I said we're not paying any more money for it. California's lost control. And it's an incredible thing. It's got to be a straight run. And they build a section. And then they build another section way away. And then another section. And then they want to hook it up. It doesn't work. <laughs> you can't hook it up. Can't. Doesn't hook. It's a little crooked. The train doesn't go good that way. So they say, let's rip the sucker down. We'll start all over again. This is like a catastrophe. All right. So is what he's saying true or is it bullshit? And is bullshit true? In, in, is truth bull? I mean, it scrambles the brain to listen to this guy. And that is apparently the point. There was a op-ed written a week or so ago in the New York Times by James Comey, the fired FBI director who's kind of leading the resistance a bit. And he wrote about Trump's, you know, propensity for world building. You know, the fantasy world, like Game of Thrones, they talk about how good an author is or the show is in world building. And that's what Trump does. Okay, here's what Comey said, and the title of his column is How Trump Co-Ops Leaders Like Bill Barr. Subhead, accomplished people lacking inner strength can't resist the compromises necessary to survive this president. Um, I'd actually disagree with that subhead. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily lacking inner strength. It's people of a different worldview. And actually, it's turned out that we realize, I think, more than we did originally, just how much of a... Uh, traditionalist, Com or, uh, Bill Barr is in his heart, and I want to—I don't want to get into that. I'll maybe deal with it in another podcast. But he—he um, he sees Trump, I think, as a person who can turn the world in his direction, and actually, he has a lot of inner strength to resist the bombardment that he is receiving from the left. So I don't agree with that, but I do agree with how Comey describes Trump. He says, speaking rapid fire with no spot for others to jump into the conversation, Mr. Trump makes everyone a co-conspirator to his preferred set of facts or delusions. I have felt it. This president building with his words a web of alternative reality and busily wrapping it around all of us in the room. I must have agreed that he had the largest inauguration crowd in history because I didn't challenge that. Everyone must agree that he has been treated very, very unfairly. The web building never stops. I think one of the most insightful analyses of Trump's propensity and skill in doing this is a column written by Lexington in The Economist titled, Donald Trump is a pro wrestler masquerading as commander in chief. Subhead, what WrestleMania says about the president and American voters. And Trump has been historically very involved in the WWE. Uh, and Linda McMahon is or was his, what is it, uh, administrator of Small Business Administration. And she's leaving that to become uh, the, the head of a campaign pack for him for 2020. And he's appeared at wrestling events and so forth, and he's big into that. And that's part of his history. And he has apparently been influenced by it, or he's just naturally lives in that world. And of course, this kind of pro wrestling that's produced by 
the World Wrestling Entertainment Federation, or wherever they are, um, is it's basically living superheroes. These people have powers and they have these feuds and they have these battles and it just goes on and on and on. And in this column, they talk about how, and I'll just quote them, it says, the WWE has found new ways in its scripting and use of digital media to buttress their fantasy. Most important, it constantly shifts between different registers of make-believe, from real to credible to absurd. And they talk about how they use real executives as part of the fantasy and how people betray the company and you know, just endless kind of machinations of the basically, you know, it's like the Greek gods or superheroes, you know, everybody's conniving. And, and it says such tricks create sufficient doubt about what is real for WWE fans and helps them keep living the dream. It's like Santa Claus, not real, but that's not the point, says Jason, a banker from Manhattan with a $300 belt over his shoulder. Further in the column, he talks about how Trump applied the principles of pro wrestling to politics and that he, I'm quoting, he says, Trump saw that the contest of ideas that political participants claimed to be engaged in was really just a partisan slugfest, almost as contrived and absurd as the WWE. He therefore offered a more ghoulishly watchable version of what voters were already getting. Why choose Jeb Bush trying to be a pantomime badass when you could have the real thing? He goes on to write, the president also employs the WWE's new stagecraft. Mixing family, business, and politics infuriates sticklers for the law. That's the modernist and postmodernist but he makes his fans think he is somehow more real or authentic than his rivals. He is also a master of shifting between degrees of make-believe. I'm not supposed to say this, he interjects into his speeches, but what the hell. And then there are his constantly distracting microdramas, breathlessly echoed by a commentariat every bit as emotionally invested in the drama as the press gallery at WrestleMania which often erupted into spontaneous gasps or applause. How much of Mr. Trump's behavior is concocted is debatable. Private Trump is also pretty pantomime. But that uncertainty merely adds WWE style to the reality tumbling effect. And I love that, the reality tumbling effect. And as KC went on to note in his emailed to me where he sent me the video with Trump with the realtors. He said, I don't know how the Democrats are going to be able to defend themselves against this. And that is going to be a challenge. And I think we just have to count on the fact that there are more people who actually prefer to live in a um, more objective reality, that more people have a center of gravity that are that is above this but nevertheless there's a there's a part of this that adds magic to the world and maybe we all need a little delusion or we all want a little delusion and maybe um, facts and reality are overrated in the uh, whole sort of panorama of human experience Uh, i don't know I saw today that 60% of the population thinks Trump does not deserve a second term. That's a Monmouth poll. So we'll see when it's a binary choice what people do. And um, But I do want to play one more clip that shows that eventually, and it may be lifetimes in the case of Trump, but eventually Big Daddy is consumed by this reality distortion and about things not actually being true in the sense of being accurate. This is a clip from a classic scene from the movie Cat in a Hot Tin Roof with Burl Ives and of course Elizabeth Taylor as Maggie the Cat uh, and Paul Newman. And this is Big Daddy talking about 
the mendacity of the family and how he's sick of it, but what else is there? So here's Burl Ives as Big Daddy. Mendacity. Look at all the lies that I got to put up with. Pretenses, hypocrisy. Pretending like I care for Big Mama. I haven't been able to stand that woman in 40 years. Church, it bores me. But I go, and all those swindling lodges and social clubs and money-grabbing auxiliaries that's, that's got me on the number one sucker list. Boy, I've lived with mendacity. Now, why can't you live with it? You've got to live with it. There's, there's nothing to live with but mendacity. Is there? So for those of you who are listening and didn't get to see that, Paul Newman is pouring himself a drink with his back turned against his father the whole during that whole speech. And at the end, when Big Daddy says, there isn't anything but mendacity, is there? Paul Newman turns to him and holds up his drink and says, well, sir, there's always this. So anyway... Uh, I wanted to show a little bit of how Red has, um, even though it stays true to its pre-truth and brutal nature, uh, becomes essentially more civilized and humane as new stages are added to it. And uh, so we're in a world where the contention between worldviews itself ensures that no single one will run roughshod over the system. And uh, I'm kind of counting on that continuing. So we'll see. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Jeff Salzman here. Uh, Check out my stuff at dailyevolver.com. Become a member of Integral Life if you haven't already. And um, we'll see you next time.